HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm Will Harris, and today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures. Long before the Food Network stars and celebrity chefs were everyday names, a talented Southern writer revolutionized the American culinary world. We'll find out who that was and all about him when we come back on A Taste of the Past. Hi, this is Linda Palaccio, your host on A Taste of the Past here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. And the man we are talking about, the talented Southern writer who revolutionized the American culinary world, was none other than Craig Claiborne. And amazingly enough, there's a whole generation of so-called foodies out there now who don't really even know who Craig Claiborne was. Amazing to me and to many other people. But we, he was truly the, uh, the, the person who changed the face of how restaurants are viewed, how, well, let me, let me just quote a few people. Uh, Frank Bruni called him the father of contemporary restaurant criticism. The L.A. Times, Russ Parsons, said that he created the modern American food world. And Phyllis Richmond said he changed the cultural life of 20th century America. She said that in the Washington Post recently. And I have with me today the author who wrote a wonderful book on Craig Claiborne called The Man Who Changed the Way We Eat, Craig Claiborne and the American Food Renaissance. And his name is Tom McNamee. And Tom joins us today from Montana. Welcome, Tom. Thanks very much, Linda. Glad to be here. I, I stumbled through that beginning because I'm I just there's so much to say about Craig Claiborne and I'm so excited and I and um had did not have the pleasure of meeting him, had been in the same room with him a couple times, but did had not met him. But of course his influence on me and with and so many people of my generation was enormous. And and I thank you for writing this book because I think it um, it explains so much about the man and about the American food scene. And let me tell a little bit about you. You're also a talented Southern writer, I must say. Um, Tom McNamee was born in Tennessee but grew up in New York City, back and forth, right? 
and studied yep. studied writing under the tutelage of Robert Penn Warren at Yale. And uh, he's the author, well, a lot of people may know you from the book you wrote, um, Alice Waters and Chez Panisse. But you also wrote a lot of a lot of wildlife books, which <laughs> we're not going to confuse that with a food issue today, but I think it's really quite interesting. You split your time between San Francisco and Montana, so I clearly understand that. <laughs> but tell me, what what drew you to Craig Claiborne and to write this book about Craig Claiborne? It was a coming together of a number of things. I was reluctant at first because I thought that the story might be a little too simple. A southern man comes to New York, becomes editor, uh, food editor of the New York Times, changes the food world, blah, blah, blah. Uh, that it would basically be a matter of simple research, writing it down and spreading it out. Um, it turned out, uh, I learned several different ways of, that the internal story of Craig Claiborne was just as interesting, if not more so, than his uh, public history and, and his, his his place in American culinary history. Um, well, you did. There was yes. a, I'm sorry. A meeting in New York um, in 2009, two days devoted entirely to Craig Claiborne, uh, sponsored by the New School and also by the Center for the Study of Southern Culture at University of Mississippi. And everybody who had ever known Claiborne at the Times, people who could close personal friends of his, his family from Mississippi. They all came together for that, and I sat there absorbing all oh, an astonishing amount of information over the course of two days, and I said, this man has to be remembered. He has to be brought back into the historical narrative right. because he's critical. Well, and and indeed, you you did bring him back in, in force, I must say. Um, and Interesting that it kind of aligned up with the 50th anniversary of his first restaurant review. Yeah, uh, I've been getting some credit for that, and in fact, it was completely an accident. (laughs) I I mean, I I should have known, but I'd forgotten when his first review actually was. (laughs) Well, we're going to backtrack a little bit and um, educate our listeners, those who, because it's amazing, there are a generation of, of young foodies who really. Um, aren't quite so sure who he is. Oh, they may have heard his name in passing, but um, I, I want to read a quote from Jacques Pepin, and, and everyone knows who Jacques Pepin is. He said, Craig Claiborne was the greatest influence of my professional life in America. Knowledgeable, dedicated, and driven, he was determined to better American eating habits. And indeed, he did. T- uh, Craig, let's, let's back up and talk a little bit about Craig Claiborne and how he first boomed onto the scene, if you will. I think it's important to realize what the American context was at the time. This is just uh, shortly after World War II. The industrialized food was in a huge upsurge. Women were going to work in numbers that had never been seen before uh, and therefore were not able to cook as much at home. And when they did, they often were using TV dinners and stuff like that. Mm. And this period from just after World War II, up into the 1950s, was an absolute wasteland in American food. I mean, it was pathetic. It was just, there was more and more frozen food, more and more canned food, more and more prepared food, and it was just dull, dull, dull. Nobody knew anything about authentic Chinese food, Italian food, even French food. There were French restaurants, but they were more or less bogus. And so, Claiborne, uh, after a, an extended Adolescence that took him up to about uh, 33 years old. 
decided that something needed to be done about this. He had been around, uh, he'd been to Morocco and France and various other places associated with his service in the Navy and realized that the isolation, cultural isolation of the United States was something he could do something about. And so he chose to go to the famous hotel school in Lausanne, Switzerland, the best in the world, Indeed. where he learned not only uh, traditional French cooking, but also service. He learned to be a fantastic waiter. He loved being a waiter. And as he gathered more and more knowledge about the food of the world, he thought, you know, where's, where's the place where I can bring this to the United States most effectively and most widely? Well, the New York Times. At that time, the food editorship of the New York Times was always held by a woman. Uh, it ran on what was then called the women's page. Yeah, they, they weren't. And yes, it wasn't, it wasn't much to it. That's it right, it wasn't food. It was right, people sent in in little anodyne accounts of dinners out. But Craig had an idea that this would be, could be a platform uh, that could be used uh, very differently. That's right. I mean, it was, it was more home economics than it was anything else. And he truly transformed those pages to become, as exactly. you said, you know, food I mean, once pages. He, once he finally got that job, which was a, quite a story unto itself, he immediately started writing columns about cooking organ meats, about amazingly elaborate pastries, incredibly laborious things. Um, he was bringing strange things to the New York Times readership immediately in his first columns in 1957. Hmm. Well, how, I mean, how... What was his? How do you think that he really um, came to this? I mean, really, what was Frank Bruni called it a formula in a way that he found a niche and just sort of you know bore down on it? Um, was it just being in the right time, the right place? And what what in, what about him in particular? Well, as far as I could tell, uh, and that's looking a long way back into the past, he really worked hard on at preparing himself to. Um, make a big, big difference. He was very ambitious. Once he finally attached to an ambition, he became very ambitious because he'd been very unambitious up to that point. He just didn't know what to do with his life. Mm-hmm. And um, so he, he realized that scholarship and knowledge and know-how and, and expertise were going to be critical to being successful at what he wanted to do. He had a very big ambition to, to really change how America ate. Well, it's interesting because there there really were not any um, food critics as we think of them now, restaurant critics. That's right. Before, there was no in such the thing as right. restaurant critics. I mean, there were that restaurant. Was one of the things he was looking forward to most. Right. And uh, he there was bitterly were... disappointed with the quality of restaurants in New York. He thought, "Oh, this is going to be great. It's going to be like eating in France. I'm going to go to all these wonderful grand French restaurants and give them great reviews." And, um, Fish that was too old, vegetables overcooked, and fakery. There were restaurants that used chips of black olive in place of truffles. And he basically found only one restaurant in the entire city of New York that lived up to his levels of uh, integrity and excellence, and that was Le Pavillon, Mm -hmm. a fantastically expensive, terribly snobbish restaurant, but a great one. (laughs) <laughs> well, he, um, I mean, there were restaurant, what I, what I want to make clear is that there were restaurant reviews at that time, but they weren't critical reviews. They were mostly very favorable, more like ad- advertisements, if you know, about Yeah, well, the they were often just tied directly to advertising. And so, you know, in, in Smith City, Missouri, 
somebody is opening up a restaurant and he buys a big ad in the local Clarion Bugle, well, guess what? They send their so-called their restaurant writer to write something resembling a review. And you'd better believe it's going to be nothing but praise because, first of all, that critic is going to be getting free meals from then on out, editor of the paper probably also, and uh, the restaurant owner is going to continue to buy ads in the paper. Well, now, so and this, right, and this one is... One hand, you know, feeding the other. That's right. And that's something that Craig Claiborne, um, he did have his own set of ethics, and he did not take uh, bribes or, or free meals when he went in. He that's went right. In. His, his integrity was absolute. It didn't help or hurt that he was working at the Times where there was plenty of money to pay for his meal so he didn't have to take any freebies. Um, I mean, I'm not saying he would have been corrupt otherwise. He, he wouldn't. But, but um, he did have fantastic opportunity to do everything at a, at a high level of excellence. And it was always the tradition at the Times that the business department and the editorial department hardly spoke to one another. The advertisers in the New York Times to this day have no say over the editorial content of hmm. the paper. Hmm. Well, he, uh, he, what a lot of people might not know is he is the one who um, started the whole system of rating restaurants with stars. He, he was the first to do it in this country. I, he, he really took it from the Michelin, Michelin guys in France, right, which he's right. been doing it for decades. Uh, and he started with the three-star system, just like the one Michelin has now. Mm-hmm. Eventually, he, he upped it to four so that there could be slightly finer distinctions. He didn't do halves. He didn't do two-and-a-half-star restaurants, the way a lot of critics do now. But uh, his system of one through four was revolutionary, and, of course, it's now almost universally adopted. That's right. He, uh, I mean, just to show a little bit of his his, um, uh, his integrity with, um, you know, a newspaper and, and keeping up with something he started, he wrote for 29 years, a brief um, hiatus, but he was at the New York Times for 29 years writing reviews, and not just reviews. He also wrote about food and entertaining and and recipes uh, he, had, he worked amazingly hard yeah he had uh, he, i mean he in his first years uh you know first 20 years i guess at the paper he would be publishing two three sometimes four articles a week including a rather long one and one that required a lot of research and work cooking uh for the uh, sunday magazine meanwhile he was gathering material for what ultimately became 20 plus cookbooks his first one, the New York Times cookbook, had, I don't know, well over a 1,000 recipes in it. And several of his other cookbooks were in that range as well. Mm-hmm. And the Meanwhile, recipe... traveling around the world, researching uh, the obscure corners of New York. I mean, he was the first person to bring at- the attention of the sort of educated uh, classes of New York to Chinatown, to Little Italy, to uh, Spanish Harlem, to the Greek... Uh, area uh, down along Ninth Avenue. Those places were sort of beyond the frontier of your basic Upper East Side uh, New York Times reader. That's right. And the, not only these flavors of the outside, of the outside world, <laughs> so to speak, of France and, and other countries, he also brought to light, uh, which is um, something that a lot of people might not be aware of, that he, it was due to him that uh, food stars of that era became food stars, if you will. Julia Child, Marcella Hazan. I mean, he introduced these people, Mater Joffrey, he, he, Diana He Kennedy. did, yeah. Uh, he, I mean, this was part of his philosophy from the beginning, was that it wasn't going to be just about restaurants, 
and just about professional food. He always loved the idea of the home cook. His mother had had a boarding house in Mississippi with a cooking staff uh, who cooked brilliant old-fashioned southern food. And he loved the idea of, of finding these people who were, there were you know, quite a few of them, who were cooking absolutely brilliant food at home, and then he would encourage them to professionalize. He encouraged Marcella Hassan to give cooking lessons. He encouraged Virginia Lee, a great Chinese cook, to give cooking lessons. Uh, ultimately, he encouraged them to publish cookbooks, which, of course, they did. He collaborated with on the Chinese cookbook with Virginia Lee. And there were many of these people that would be brought to the fore. First of all, I said he loved that restaurant, the Pavillon. The chef at the Pavillon, a guy named Pierre Franet, who became his professional writing partner for decades, um, was in a dispute with the owner, and uh, the, Craig decided to put the rather funny story of the dispute on the front page of the Times. And so Pierre became America's first star chef. Craig loved chefs. Uh, chefs had always just been back in the kitchen. Nobody knew who they were. There was usually an owner who was out in the front of the restaurant in a little tuxedo or something. Uh, but the chef was a, was a servant. And so Craig elevated the professional chef, uh, like Paul Prudhomme or the Troigreau brothers in France, to um, real celebrity status. And then he brought these home cooks and their brilliant work to the public. Diana Kennedy with her Mexican food, Edna Lewis's Southern cooking, um, as you mentioned, Mother Joffrey and her Indian cooking. Uh, and there are many, many of these, and, and their professional careers were launched. That's right. Almost exclusively in Craig's columns. I can I can still remember some of the spreads in the page. Um, he would just have, you know, he'd make sure that there was a beautiful picture of them and there would be a long explanation of their life and the type of cooking and then a couple right. of different recipes. It was really, you know, quite, uh, these people were very fortunate to have him writing he, about them. He was a very generous-spirited person. I mean, one of the great examples for me was when his first cookbook, the New York Times cookbook, this humongous thing that made his fortune, uh, and it's a great, great basic cookbook for anybody. It's actually what I learned to cook from, too. It was due to come out in September of 1961. He gets a call from this editor at Canav saying she has this brilliant cookbook coming out, French Mastering the Art of French Cooking by Julia Child et al., and um, would he consider reviewing it? And he said, no, I don't <laughs> review books. And, but eventually they worked out a deal where, because it turned out this editor, Judith Jones at Knopf, and her husband were great home cooks. And so Craig did a feature on them and their uh, rooftop barbecue in Manhattan mm -hmm. in return for um, reviewing Mastering the Art of French Cooking, Volume 1, which he did. And he gave it an absolutely you know, stunning, great review at exactly the time when his book was coming out. In other words, Julie Child's book was coming out also in September of 1961. And he sort of stepped aside to put her in the spotlight first. Huh, that's interesting. Um, we're going to find out some more about his life and in all of his hard work when we come back after a short break. Night and stars that shine above so bright. White Oak Pastures is a 146-year-old, multi-generational family farm that works in cooperation with nature to produce artisan meat that is safe, 
healthy, nutritious, and good to eat. Without fail, we ensure that our production practices are economically practical, ecologically sustainable, and that the animals are always humanely treated. We never falter in our determination to conduct our business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. We're back on A Taste of the Past, and I'm speaking with Tom McNamee, who is the author of The Man Who Changed the Way We Eat, Craig Claiborne, and the American Food Renaissance. And Tom, um, in your book, you actually do talk about, I mean, Craig was, was so successful at the New York Times, and he really did uh, pioneer restaurant criticism, and not only that, but he, he wrote wonderful recipes. Um, you mentioned Pierre Frenet, and I, and I have to say, I used to, to cook by their article. They, they would write a weekly article called The 60-Minute Gourmet, and um, together they wrote this, and it was fabulous. And I have to laugh now when I say it, because we have 30-minute gourmet, and we have 20-minute gourmet. Ah, the idea of 60 minutes, you would take 60 minutes to make a meal. You know, yeah, exactly. yeah today it seems unheard of. But tell me, what, how, do you, how do you think that... Um, Restaurant criticism has has actually changed since um, since his time, since Craig's time. Well, he or began to change very gradually himself from these very small capsule reviews that would say something like Pierre La Ray's French Restaurant is a delightful place with excellent bistro food, and then there'd be the name and the address and the phone number. That'd be the review. Huh. Over time, he, they became more and more essays and about more than just the food. He was always very punctilious about the service um, and about the atmosphere. He didn't like to see a pencil sticking out of the head waiter's pocket. Uh, he hated the idea of, un- of ashtrays that weren't empty. Don't forget, everybody was smoking like mad in the day at that time. Um, he began to talk about the place of the restaurant in a larger society. He would uh, observe the behavior of people there, talk about the history of the dishes, and it just gradually grew more elaborate and more informative, and needless to say, longer, to the point where what we have now often in restaurant criticism are essays, in effect. I mean, you read the last several uh, restaurant critics for the New York Times, they're talking about what shoes the women are wearing and uh what have you know the, the bartender's uh quips and uh, you know a, a lot of details that are meant to tell you really thoroughly what the restaurant is all about uh craig in his day really still did stay focused more on the food although as time went by he also uh treated the social uh, milieu as well that's right uh back to his um his pairing with uh, Pierre Frenet and, and writing with him and, and their the wonderful work they did together, uh, he would always take us. They would always take us to, you know, a new place and, and experiment with new foods, new ingredients. And well, in fact, um, you mentioned that um, in your book that he. Uh, Craig Claiborne was responsible for introducing American home cooks to the salad spinner and, and the cuisine art. Uh, yeah, uh, you know he. Uh Despite his training, in, in, which was in classical French cooking, as was Pierre's, 
uh, he very early developed an interest in uh, so-called ethnic cuisines, and and I think probably the, the most important contribution he made to American gastronomic history was the internationalization of American interest. There's nowhere else in the world. There's so many different kinds of restaurants, as in this country, or in fact, probably in New York City. Uh, and that largely goes to him and his travels and his, his interest in not just French, Italian, Chinese, but Indian and Brazilian and African and Israeli and uh, Vietnamese and Malayan. Uh, he, you know, he kept constantly bringing in the outer world, and therefore a lot of things that we now take for granted as we think, well, We've always had basil and pine nuts, haven't we? We've always been eating pesto genovese. Well, no. Uh, didn't happen until Craig started talking about this previously virtually unknown herb and nut <laughs> right. and the, the sauce made from them. Arugula, same deal, balsamic vinegar, prosciutto, authentic prosciutto. had never been seen in this country. Creme fraiche, unknown. Uh, Vietnamese fish sauce, nuoc mom, a great Mexican ingredient, epasote. Um, it, I mean, it goes on and on and on things that are now just part of our ordinary life, the fact that you can get all these different kinds of salad greens, even here at the uh, IGA grocery store in Big Timber, Montana, population 1,300, I can get mezclan. <laughs> kind of amazing. Yeah. Uh, you know, and the thing about, about Craig Claiborne is he was meticulous in his writing, his research, his proofreading. His recipes all worked, all of them. And, they, they do. Yeah, and, and it's, um, you know, so often today you'll read a recipe and they'll say, oh, oops, there's a correction. We forgot to tell you to add, the, yeah. you know, the salt. But it went in his work with Pierre, I mean, he would, he would leave the cooking to Pierre, right? But he would be right there with his typewriter. Yeah, yeah he would be shouting at Pierre cooked the way classically trained restaurant chefs did. He would just throw stuff in. And Craig would say, how much was that, Pierre? He'd say, oh, um, measure it, Pierre. Okay, one and a quarter cups. And, and so uh, Pierre had the flair, the imagination, the creativity, and this, an amazing technical skills. And it was up to Craig to break those down into comprehensible, accomplishable elements <laughs> so that he could lead you through the process of making something that might turn out to be, you know, you'd, you'd think it was difficult. It turns out to be quite a fancy dish. You know, it's got garnishes and a, a fancy sauce with a julienne of lemon peel and uh, uh, Marnier in it. And, and um, he will have led you there, however, one simple step at a time. Yeah. Well, talk about flair. They, the two of them went on quite a, an expensive dinner together that they, uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Back in 1975, Craig was had a rare evening at home put his feet up after dinner, was watching TV, and it was a fundraising night for WNET, the public television station in New York City. And um, most people, of course, turned those things off, but he was just sitting there exhausted, drinking his usual stingers. And up comes uh, an item for auction, donated by America, dinner for two, anywhere, no price limit. And he goes, whoa, no price limit. Um, bingo, gets on the phone, bids $300, wins, and calls Pierre and says, you can't believe what we have got. We can have dinner anywhere in the world, as long as they take the American Express card, and there's no price limit. And so they set out to find a restaurant that they thought could create the fanciest dinner they could possibly 
come up with, and uh, it turned out to be a small place in Paris called Chez Denis, and they ended up having a dinner that cost in 1975 $4,000. The meal went on basically through three services. It probably took about eight hours. Uh, They had ancient wines and cognacs. They had every rare ingredient in the world, and it just was almost unbearable uh, to think of eating. Uh, and that, by the way, that $4,000 translates to probably $20,000 easily, yeah. current <laughs> money. Um, and they, he wrote it up. He, he didn't tell the times he was going. He sort of snuck off. And, um, it, but they loved the story so much, they put it on the front page of the paper, and it was a scandal. Uh, many of the readers were absolutely outraged at this extravagance, this waste, because this was exactly at the time when you know, Vietnam War was just over. The United States had been humiliated there. New York City was in the midst of its worst fiscal crisis in its history. Um, there was a famous Daily News headline, Ford to City dropped dead. The feds weren't helping at all. Uh, crime was bad. Uh, it was just a, a bad time in general for him to make such a swashbuckling display of ego and uh, consumption. And people went crazy. Allegedly, it was condemned. Craig always said it was condemned by the Vatican. I, I was unable to confirm that. It's <laughs> possible. Uh, and then there was a great wave of reaction in turn uh, in his favor, saying, hey, look, he's not taking food out of anybody's mouth. And Julia Child wrote him a letter saying, well, Craig, what a to-do. Uh, would anybody have been writing letters from the Times if some rich bitch had won a Mercedes-Benz? <laughs> Uh, all in great style, <laughs> indeed. Um, you mentioned that he was, uh, yeah, sat back drinking his stingers. Um, it is known that he he did have a rather unhappy life. He did through all um, his success. He he, he just he wasn't was, happy. You know, it, it's it's hard to know how much to attribute that to the social situation of being a gay man at that time and mm-hmm. having to be in the closet pretty much. Uh, of course, that was a strain on anybody. But I think Craig was also born with a sort of depressive streak, and he was very shy and tentative in his friendships. He was not quite reliable in his friendships. Uh, he was quite temperamental, um, and he was um, extremely insecure, which makes no sense at all because he, here he was. He was the, the king of American food, undisputed. There was nobody else out there. He was the king of it, and he had an independent power center at the Times. had to answer to nobody. Uh, he had an unlimited budget. He was Everything a super and a, and, great. Right, and he was but a he super was host. Just fearful yeah. and closed in on himself, and the way he dealt with that, uh, there were two ways he dealt with it. One was to go ceaselessly to psychotherapy, changing therapists constantly, not, not satisfied. And the other was to drink, and he was a terrible, terrible drinker. I... I dug up bar bills from oh, like one cruise he was on where each night he had seven margaritas before dinner. Wow. And that, that would stupefy wow. most human beings. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yes, indeed. Well, you know, I wonder what, if he were alive today, what, you know, what he would think about all the, um, the Facebooking and tweeting and Pinterest. And of course he was around for the, the advent of the food network. Um, but uh, had it not been for him, I don't know that these these activities and certainly Food Network or Radio Network devoted to food would really um, have been able to come into existence. Eventually, maybe somebody would have broken that, you know, the American culinary 
uh, stigma of, of food was not important, but it was really due to him. It's a natural part. outgrowth of, of what he was doing, um, which is lionizing the chef uh, and making food, of cha- changing cooking from drudgery into fun, changing the nature of the American dinner party from where the housewife is isolated in the kitchen, laboring over hot stove while everybody else is having martinis in the living room. Mm-hmm. Um, he opened it all up. And, of course, what we see now is it continues to open up. I actually think he probably wouldn't really love a lot of what's going on now because it's reached the point, it seems to me, of a sort of frenetic uh, pace and so much food is meant to dazzle rather than to satisfy. Right. Uh, restaurants are so overcharged with noise and it's, there's, there's so much excitement associated with food now. And I think that wouldn't sit well with him. He liked to have a calm, peaceful dinner where he could really taste the food, have a civilized conversation with his friends. And um, I, I think the sort of circus that we see represented on a lot of these contest shows on the Food Network would appall him. And I know that the noise in uh, so many restaurants would be just intolerable to him. He'd walk out of uh, the slanted door in San Francisco or any of the number of restaurants in New York that are just ear-shattering. Yeah. Well, one of the uh, the writers who reviewed your book said that um, he became the gateway to culinary fame and was food writing's first rock star, which, of course, that was before the term had even rock star had been you know coined, that he yeah. was the first rock star. And indeed, he, as you mentioned earlier in the interview, he brought the chef out from behind the stove. And he did, in fact, create celebrity chefs. And uh, now, of course, maybe created a few monsters, too. <laughs> Bigger-than-life celebrity chefs. My, my favorite <laughs> recent example of uh, the, the sort of natural but unfortunate outgrowth of Craig's uh, praise of chefs is a guy coming on to uh, Chopped or one of those shows, and he said, and they were, had a little billboarding thing up at the front where each of the contestants was talking about how he was going to go about his business. And uh, this one said, well, I think I've got a really good chance tonight because the Lighting really agrees with my skin tone. Ah! <laughs> Wonder how it tasted. At <laughs> 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 the uh, it, it is it is really there's so much in this book that you um, that you explore and that you open up to to the readers. And at the end of the book, um, I'm, I want to finish with something that you wrote. Uh, so fitting because you say the world you transformed, Craig Claiborne, is the world we cook in dine in, and talk about food in. And that is so true. And I thank you so much for all the work you did on this book and for joining me today on the show to talk about it. Again, I'm, thank you, Linda. it's Tom McNamee, and the book is The Man Who Changed the Way We Eat, Craig Claiborne and the American Food Renaissance. And you, again, have been listening to A Taste of the Past, and I'm Linda Palaccio. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.